Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. This is Today on Cape Talk. It is 25 to 10, and you are joined by me. Yes, of course, you heard it there, Kino Cummings. But even more important, Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, my sidekick, my co-host, the man who knows most things about the universe. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Do you know what? It's snowing here. <laughs> it's just last week I said it's cold. This week, yeah, it is it's actually snowing, and there's, there's an inch of snow on the ground here. I've never felt snow. You're kidding ever. me. No, I've never ever. Oh, my God, it's, it's really cold. But um, out of this horrible doom and gloom is this shaft of sunlight coming through, which is the Pfizer vaccine coming to the UK. <laughs> So, despite the fact that this sort of tragic weather would normally have everyone's mood in its boots, there's a huge increase in morale here because of the announcement this week that uh, our regulator, the MHRA, have approved vaccines for coronavirus to start going into people probably as early as next week. And it will be the first country, the first major Western country, to start putting vaccines into people for this. So it's it feels like an enormous step forward has been taken, even though we haven't actually given any vaccine to anybody yet it feels like an enormous amount has been achieved there is a long way to go but it's it's a, a major triumph for science i think I, I i definitely think it is um this must be the one vaccine i mean has this vaccine set any records i think it has yeah I, I don't think anyone has ever come up with a vaccine from the get-go against a virus that we didn't even know existed less than a year ago and got it already into patients. I don't think anyone's actually ever done that through through the complete regulatory process in a completely new way with a completely new vaccine, which is what this is. It's a genetic vaccine that Pfizer have made. Um, and the way it works is that you basically take the genetic code from the outer coat of the virus. So it's what the coronavirus uses to make part of its outer coat, specifically the S or spike protein. And they've put that into this oily bubble and you inject billions of these oily bubbles containing the genetic message into people and the cells at the site of injection pick up the oily bubbles unwrap them get the genetic code out read it turn it into the message that the the coronavirus would use to make its outer coat were it in that cell for real and then show on the surface of the cell to the immune system this is what a cell infected with coronavirus looks like and that then provokes an immune response, and you get both antibodies and white blood cells that can fight off viral infected cells. And no one's ever done anything quite like this on the scale they're going to do it. So I, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's a record breaker. I think maybe what, what, what you know, the fact that we've been hit with the big corona stick um, and it's forced us to do this sort of thing, um, it might even add value to the way we develop vaccines in the future. I, I think know. it will. I, mean, I, I think know. you're right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are, are saying to me, as well as on, on many other media outlets, well, hang on a minute. Normally, this takes 10 years to do this. And these people have done this in 10 months. How has this been possible without cutting corners? And actually, what they've done is to be incredibly organized, very streamlined. And instead of having a sequential domino effect where you do one thing, you then get the data, build the dossier, raise the funding send it off to the regulator and in the meantime set up your next phase in the trial. They've said, let's overlap all of this so that it's completely streamlined and there's data being fed into regulators and being approved and appraised all the time in real time along the process. And it's streamlined enormous amounts of things. And it just goes to show what you can achieve, what human endeavour can do in a very short amount of time when you really need to. 
Now, our lotto numbers. Now, we had five, six, seven, eight, and nine, <laughs> and the bonus ball of 10, and 20 people won that. And people are going, what the? How, in, how is it even possible? Chris? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's quite funny. I, I looked at that and I just laughed so much because um, I, I also sent it to a mathematician friend of mine who's a doctor at the hospital. He used to used to be a professional mathematician and then decided that maths was not sufficiently hard, so he would also go and do a medical degree. So he's he's actually the best person we've ever had in our department because not only have we got someone who knows about medicine and viruses. We also have someone that can see straight through the BS in any kind of paper or any kind of research that where someone's done done some particular jiggery-pokery with numbers. So I thought, right, yeah. Jordan's the man, and if he's, what he says goes. So I just I sent him the picture because someone else clipped me the picture of, of the lotto numbers. And, um, and I said, what's your reaction? And he took the typical statistics cold uh, I, the likelihood of this happening is exactly the same as the likelihood of any other combination of numbers. And yeah. the only reason that, I mean, well, the point he's making, and he's absolutely right, the, the reason that, that we attach significance to this coincidence is because that particular sequence of numbers happens to mean something special to us. Because we number those numbers in that order, and we therefore attach significance to that ascending sequence. But actually, there's no less likelihood or greater likelihood that that sequence will occur than any other in any other order. It's just that we notice that sequence because it's special to us, because it's, those numbers are directly adjacent to each other. Yep. But they are no more likely to crop up than if you had a random smattering of numbers or numbers at the other end of the number spectrum. It just doesn't matter. But what does matter when you're playing the lottery is how many other people win it alongside you because that's how much sharing has to go on of the winnings. And, of course, if you win a lot of money, then uh, if you have to share it with an enormous number of people, you end up actually not winning very much at all. And yeah. so the other thing to bear in mind is picking numbers that fewer people are likely to pick. Now, there were 20, I think. There were 20 winners in the lotto this week, yes. uh, which meant that they had to share the prize 20 ways. Unless, of course, someone's got some aliases, I don't know. If you'd picked other random numbers which have an equally high likelihood of coming up, then actually you would have shared with fewer people. And it's probably because there are lazy people who can't be bothered. <laughs> who've done their, They've done their homework. They know that the likelihood of that combination coming up is as high as any other combination. So that they just think, well, I really can't be bothered to pick other random numbers. It's very hard work picking random numbers. So I'm going to go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, or, or 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 3, 4, 5, 6. You, you get my point. So as a result, the, the, the person is a victim of other people's laziness, unfortunately. <laughs> Okay. I'm going to do 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and then hopefully bonus number of 16. Let's see what happens next time round. Good luck with uh, that. But they all shared, they shared five, 5 million rand, which is about 50 quid. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I bet they were gutted, yeah. though. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> when, yeah. Oh, no, I think I've won. No, no, yeah, but you have alongside all these other people. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've got lots of people waiting um, to ask some questions, and they've heeded my call to, to give us a call. So we've got Jeffrey, Stewart, Josh and more. So we go straight to Jeff in Seapoint. Jeffrey, hi there. Um, hi, Doc. Morning. I'm driving back from Johannesburg to Cape Town. I've noticed an interesting phenomenon now on the road. A um, number of bridges that cross over the highway, and at each bridge is a flock of birds. I'm guessing they swifts or swallows, that type, that type of bird, dashing around right at the bridge um, um, and not on only just one bridge, but a half a dozen along the way. I presume they're chasing buggers, but why would that be just located around a bridge? 
Uh, I don't know the answer to this. So if there are any avid ornithologists out there who happen to know why bridges should be particularly attractive to certain bird types, I suspect you're right. It could well be it's food that's attracting them because most things are led by food. We're no exception. We go where our stomachs want us to go. And you're quite right. It could well be insects or something else that, that happens to be more common in the vicinity of the bridge. It could just be shelter as well. And they've because there's one set of them there, others have joined and then they're all kind of flocking around the bridges. Stuart in Cape Town CBD. Hi. Hi, Doc. I was just wondering about the vaccine. Um, I, as I was asking this question. Um, if it's only effective if it's kept at under 70 degrees, how in heaven's name does it get injected into the body? If anything of that temperature, that low temperature, is injected into your body, it's going to do incredible damage to your to, to your skin, to your yeah, no, I, I understand what you're getting at. Uh, and the point that's being made is that uh, the headlines about Pfizer's vaccine are that it has to be transported at minus 70 or minus 80 degrees C. That doesn't mean it has to be injected at minus 70 or minus 80 degrees C, thankfully. And you can thaw it out and you can warm it and keep it in a local fridge at much higher temperature for up to five days. But it does deteriorate the minute you start to warm it up. So that's why it stays viable at full potency for about five days and then it's deteriorating. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to inject it at minus 70, thank goodness. Thanks a lot for that, Stuart. Have a lovely weekend, sir. Bye. Uh, thanks, sir. Let's go to Josh. Josh in Rondebosch. Hi, Josh. Hello, Chris. Um, if you're sitting in one of Elon Musk's capsules on a SpaceX rocket and it's uh, midday uh, in Cape Canaveral and the sun's right above and he, you launch and you're sort of moving out towards Mars um, or wherever. And um, why does it start getting dark if you're heading off towards the uh, sun? Yeah. yeah, that's a very good question. And you could say, well, when I look at... I mean, we, when we look upwards towards the, the, the heavens, we see blue. Um, so we say the sky is blue, and actually we're completely wrong to say the sky is blue, because the sky isn't blue. And when it comes to night time, of course the stars are white on a black background. And that tells you that the sky must be colourless, because otherwise the stars wouldn't look white, they would look blue, and they, they don't. So therefore, the blueness must be some kind of illusion. Why do we get that illusion? It's because light from the sun, when it comes in the form of white light, because the sun's giving out a whole range of colours of radiation, when that light reaches the Earth's atmosphere, because of the, the nature of the molecules in our atmosphere, which is 80% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, the bonds between the oxygen atoms in the oxygen molecule and the nitrogen atoms in the nitrogen molecule, the size of that bond is roughly on the same scale as the size of the light waves of blue light. So this has the effect of scattering blue light, but other colours go straight through. So when you look up to the sky, you see blue light coming at you from all directions. So you see blue sky because your brain says, well, the only interpretation I can make of blue light arriving from all directions is the thing I'm looking at must be blue. So in other words, the sky looks blue because there's light reflecting and ricocheting all over the place towards you. When it's night time and that effect goes away, there, there isn't any blue light rebounding all over the place. So you see the sky for the real colour it is, which is colourless with the black of space and absence of light behind it and when you leave the earth's atmosphere which is what's doing that light scattering blue light ricocheting effect 
behind you, when your rocket rises above the atmosphere, you see black space because there's now nothing to reflect light at you apart from the moon and then some distant planets, and they're tiny in the grand scheme of things. So you see nothing reflecting light at you, and therefore it looks black. There we go. Thanks. Chris, can I ask one quick question? Do you believe in a great designer? In other words, do you believe in God? I know it's a heavy question. Um, I don't believe in God, um, but um, I don't at the same time object to anybody who believes in God. And, and I don't have a problem with, with science and religion being relatively easy bedfellows. I, but I do believe that one should be taught in, in a church, for example, and the other should be taught in a science classroom. I don't think the two should overlap because they're quite different things. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, man. Josh, well. Josh, do you believe in God? No. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a passionate agnostic. Um, yeah. I believe that the paranormal has undiscovered science. Well, there we go. Josh, <laughs> great chatting to you, sir. Have a good weekend, eh? Yeah. Bye. Cheers, man. Uh, let's go to John. John's in Azerfontaine. Hey, John. Oh, good morning to you, Keena, and good morning to Chris. Morning. So, uh, I'm just answering a question which was asked earlier about the birds under the bridge. Oh, brilliant. Yes. I noticed on the freeway. Yeah. Those are, in fact, swallows. And they will build under all those bridges wherever there's mud handy. So if it's a small riverbed or something next to the road, which is within easy reach, that's where they get the material for their home. And they construct their nest under those bridges where they're safe. They can't be got at by predators. And they're also protected from the weather. And those nests are amazing, the construction of them, because they last for a very long time. I mean, uh, sometimes swallows will return to the same one. Uh, after they've migrated up to Europe for our winter, and then they come back again now at the beginning of summer. And that's what it is. The swallows are building their nests under the bridges, and you'll find them under bridges in the Kruger Park, along the N1, uh, particularly just to the south of Bloemfontein. So that is the answer to that question. Fantastic. Thank you so so much. much. And and in fact, um, I used to have a lot of swallows with nests on my house, under the eaves of my house, and they would return to the same nest year after year after year. And when I eventually had to replaster the house, because, I mean, my house is 500 years old and and it needed a bit of work doing, and we had to knock off some of those nests, and unfortunately the swallows didn't come back. So I don't know if you have any tips for how I can get them back, because it was always lovely to hear the, the baby birds cheeping under the eaves. Yeah, I wish I did, but uh, no, they, they, they all return if the nest is there, I suppose. It's surprising that they haven't come back and built new ones. They obviously but, don't yeah. like the colour of the house, do they? I'll have to repaint. <laughs> could be, could be. <laughs> Thanks for the answer, one though. Does not a summer, mate. No, it anyway. doesn't. That's quite right. <laughs> okay. Wonderful Cheers. call, John. Stay safe. Thanks, Thanks uh, John Inazafontaine. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. We also have some voice notes. Let's take a listen to them. Hi, Dr. Smith. Um, I'm amazed to hear that uh, the vaccine's about to be rolled out for the coronavirus and so quickly, as everyone is amazed. Um, My question is, how come after all the years of HIV being an issue, uh, they still haven't come up with a vaccine to help with that, and yet they could do the coronavirus vaccine within a year? Isn't that a poignant question on the, the very week when we've had World AIDS Day? And here yep. we are on almost the fourth decade since the announcement by researchers at the Pasteur Institute in Paris of the virus that causes AIDS, HIV. And they told us at the time it was Luc Montagné and Francois Barisanoussi who discovered the virus. And they said, I remember that seeing the press conference on the television. I was not very old at the time and I, I still remember seeing her on the telly and she said and the reporter bullishly said well now we know what the virus is it will only be a matter of time before 
we make a vaccine. I suppose they weren't wrong because it is a matter of time, just a very, very long matter of time, but we haven't got this vaccine. Why is that? Why has this defeated us when in just 10 months we can make a vaccine against coronavirus? And the answer is that actually they're quite different beasts. And the one thing that sets the coronavirus apart is that it hasn't changed hardly at all. In the 10 months since we've been studying it, 11 months, it's hardly changed genetically at all. When HIV gets into a person, it's a quite a different virus which works in a very different way. And the virus that you, you actually have in you with HIV is changing continuously. It makes ferocious numbers of genetic spelling mistakes when it copies the genetic information of the virus. And as a result of that, it is a moving target which your immune system tries to lock onto and fails. It controls it a bit, and in some people it does succeed, but in the vast majority of people it doesn't succeed, and the virus effectively fatigues your immune system, which is continuously playing catch-up, trying to lock onto a new target and a new target. That, coupled with the fact the virus has various clever mechanisms to hide in the body, it has a stage of, um, or a process that we, we dub latency, where when you catch HIV, it doesn't just grow all over the body. It targets the immune system, and that's your first weakness. You've got a virus that's hitting the very thing that can actually get rid of the virus. But it's also hiding the genetic information of the virus inside the genetic code of your white blood cells. And it doesn't immediately turn on. It can hide in there for years. And at some point, that cell will just activate that genome. The virus will come out of hiding and turn that cell into a virus factory, spew out loads more viruses, which can then go and infect more cells, and even if you take down the cell that had the virus hiding in it, by then it's already left the premises and into millions of other cells. So it's a moving target, and it has this other way of escaping the immune surveillance and hiding as a piece of genetic information. And these two things have made it incredibly hard to defeat and to produce a vaccine which will protect people adequately. It's, there, there are some rays of hope on the horizon, and people are making progress, but it has proved incredibly difficult. And it may well be that other strategies to cure HIV are going to become the dominant way in which we deal with the problem in the future, as well, of course, as public health measures, education, and not catching it in the first place. Prevention here is definitely better than cure. Without a doubt. Chris, uh, we've got Barry. Barry's in Grossy Park. Hi, Barry. Hi, good morning, Dr. Smith and Kino. Hi. I would like to know, I'm a fisherman, and, you know, the tides, I think, it's to do with the moon rotation and that. Yeah. If there's no moon, will we still have a high tide and a low tide? Uh, mm. The reason we have tides is because the Earth rotates inside the orbit of the moon. So you can imagine the moon goes around the Earth, and the moon takes about a month to do a complete orbit of the Earth. So every day, the moon is... Um, is a bit further across the sky at any given time. The Earth is turning inside the orbit of the Moon. The Moon pulls, because of gravity, the water on the surface of the Earth towards it a bit. And so you get this bump of water on the side of the Earth facing the Moon. And the Earth turns through that bump of water. So that's why you get a high tide as the, as the Earth turns in each part of the Earth's surface. And it's an hour different each day because the moon has moved across the sky a bit each day as it goes on this giant loop around the Earth. And then you'll say, but hang on, 
that explains one tide a day. There are two high tides a day. What about the other one? Well, you also get a bump of water on the far side of the Earth, and that's because the water's left behind because the Earth moves towards the moon a bit. And so you get a bump on the moonward side of the Earth, and you also get a bump of water on the opposite side of the Earth. And that's why you've got two high tides a day, one of them a bit bigger than the other one. Now, you also get the effect of the sun here, because the Earth, remember, is, is um, also um, got a situation where the sun and the moon can either be in alignment or not in a- alignment, and the sun has the same effect of pulling water a bit towards the, Earth's, uh, towards, the, towards the sun on the Earth's surface, and that's why you have spring tides and neap tides, higher than normal tides and lower than normal tides, and they occur when either the moon is in alignment with the sun or at 90 degrees to the sun. So were we to have no moon, we wouldn't have the huge tides that we get, but you'd still see a bit of water movement and redistribution because of the effect of the sun. But it would be trivial in comparison to the effect of the moon. And our tides used to be even bigger than they are today because the moon used to be even closer to the Earth than it is today. It's moving away from the Earth a bit because the Earth, as it spins, is giving some energy to the moon and the moon is migrating away from the Earth at roughly two centimetres per year. So as a result of that, our tidal amplitude is falling. And when the moon was much younger and the Earth was much younger, we had enormous tides as the moon was much closer. And we can see those written into the fossil record. You can see evidence that that was the case historically. And as the moon has migrated away from us, the tides have have, uh, diminished a bit. Chris, thank you for that. And Barry, happy fishing, sir. How often do you go out? Well, not too often, but um, it doesn't mean I catch fish every time. (laughs) (laughs) That's the classic one. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. You know, it's always a good excuse to get out or fishing. Gone for the day. Ah, sorry, didn't catch anything. But uh, very wonderful call. Thank you very much. We've got uh, about two minutes, so let's try our luck and see if we can squeeze in this one, Joe. Hey, Keenan and Chris. Uh, Thank you for that lovely explanation as to why the sky looks blue. Just on that topic, um, why is the moon not blue then at night? Um, surely it's the same light coming off the moon. Yeah, I'll figure that one out. Maybe you can help me. Thanks so much. Thanks for yeah. that. This, this is another excellent question. And the point is that the intensity of light coming from the moon is much lower than the intensity of light that would come from the sun. There's so much light coming from the sun that it's going to produce a very broad illumination of producing that blue effect that you see. Whereas in the at night time, the amount of light coming off the moon isn't sufficiently bright to illuminate the entire sky in that way, so you don't see a blue sky, but you do see enough light reflecting from the moon's surface to, to illuminate the moon's surface, and to, well, to, because it's reflecting off, it's illuminated, you're able to pick out the detail of the moon's surface, but it's coming through a, a transparent atmosphere, which hasn't been sufficiently illuminated to, to deluge your eye in blue light, so it still looks white. Well, there we go, and right on time. Chris, you must have a good one. What are you up to this weekend? Well, because of this blinking weather, uh, I, I'm not sure what I, what plans I will make. But um, I've got back into my yeah. into my mecha- motor mechanics that I used to do a lot more of when I was young, and um, and so I made an impulse buy the other day because I thought I've I've done lots of cars, I've done motorbikes, I've built go karts and things, and I've rebuilt lots of engines. Yeah. I've never done a tractor, so I went on eBay and I bought an old farm tractor from 1961, and then it turned up in this enormous lorry, and I've got it in my garage. My wife is not impressed, but I've got to fix this thing and um, and get it going. So that's 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 my project for the winter. <laughs> okay, so pr- pray tell, what do you do 
once the tractor's <laughs> well it's a beast i've got it going and it's um it's it's a really nice it's got a four liter diesel engine on it. it's a fantastic machine it's beautifully built i mean these things were built like tanks this thing's never going to die but it's got it you know it burns burns more oil than, than diesel at the moment so i've got to fix that up so if anyone's a tractor expert and would like to to give me some tips on how i get the valve guides out of a 1961 uh ford some major super major tractor i'd be delighted to have someone mentor me Indeed. Chris, always great <laughs> okay. chatting to you. But you didn't expect that answer, weekend. did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. I can imagine you got into trouble with your wife. <laughs> well, her, honey, I bought a tractor.